Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book, Betsy Timboom, Promise of God, by Mike Evans, with permission from Time Worthy Books. And we are on chapter 22. If you are listening to this with your children, you might want to listen to it before they do and uh, to decide whether you want them to listen to it. There are some sensitive areas in uh, in this chapter that I think would be hard for children to take in. So just uh, do that at your discretion. Thank you. The situation in Europe took a dramatic turn in September of 1939 when Germany invaded Poland. Reports on the radio from London and from a station in Krakow kept us abreast of the action. We listened to them at night and in a departure from our normal routine in the mornings at breakfast. Germans attacking from the west drove quickly towards Warsaw. Two weeks later, the Russian army invaded Poland from the east. Near the end of the month, Great Britain declared war on Germany, but it did the Poles little immediate good. The fighting was over by October, with the Germans and the Russians dividing control of the country. In May of the following year, the British government of Nouvelle Chamberlain collapsed. Chamberlain was replaced by Winston Churchill with a vow to fight until he reached absolute victory. We knew that our hopes of a peaceful life had ended. Before long, British warplanes filled the sky over the Netherlands as they made their way to bomb German army positions. As the conflict in Poland began, the Netherlands, holding fast to its historic position of neutrality, closed its borders to refugees. Yet in spite of that, Jews by the thousands fled Germany and poured into our country. In response, the government, with Queen Wilhelmina's support, constructed a refugee camp at Westerbor in the northern part of the country. One morning, as we gathered for breakfast, Papa turned on the radio to the news reports of squalid conditions in the camps. The description, people sleeping on the ground, no sanitation facilities, little food, left me appalled. That must be horrible, living in a camp like that, I commented. It hardly described how I felt, but I was compelled to say something. I'm sure it is, Papa replied in a distracted manner. Perhaps what we've heard about conditions is Germany is correct, Corey added. Otherwise, why would they leave? It bothers me, I answered. And Corey glanced at me. What does? Their condition, I explained. The living conditions at the camp. Adults aren't the only ones living there, you know. I'm sure there are young children. The government won't let them starve, Papa replied. There's a difference between not starving and actually living equipped. Well, Corey continued, there's really nothing we can do about it. The problem is much too large for us to make a difference. Her response only increased my sense of frustration on the topic. But what does it say about us if we don't try, I asked. Papa looked over at me. We can always pray. We've been praying, I replied with an edge. Every day we pray for peace in Jerusalem and blessing on the Jews, but we have Jews right here in our country who need our help. The more I said, the angrier I became. Angry at the Germans for causing trouble. Angry that the Jews were forced to leave their homes. Angry at my sister and father for their reluctance to act. And angry with myself for not doing something sooner. It isn't enough anymore to pray for blessing on them and turn a blind eye to while they flee for their lives. I was ranting now, but I didn't care. We can't just pray and pat ourselves on the back about how spiritual we are. Papa laid aside his fork and leaned back in his chair. What are you suggesting? We need to do something. But what, he insisted, what can we do that would change their condition? 
It's not just about changing their condition, I argued. It's about changing our condition, about changing our attitude, about becoming doers of the word, not merely hearers. Maybe if we do something, others will join us, and they'll be encouraged to do something too. But what? We could gather clothes, blankets, food. I'm sure they could use almost anything we could give them. But how would we deliver them to them? Corey asked. I don't know. Surely somebody would help us with that. Well, she sighed. Okay, where do you suggest we begin? We'll begin with our own things, the idea suddenly occurring to me without any previous thought. We can rummage through our closets and dressers for clothes we no longer wear and don't need. Usable items, not the worn-out things. And then we'll ask our neighbors to help. I rose from my place at the table and started towards the hall. Come on, we can begin now. But what about the shop, Corey protested. Papa can get started without you. Our search through the dressers and closets, the attic produced three boxes of clothes and shoes. Some of them had belonged to Mama, some to Aunt Annie. Parting with them brought back many memories, and several times we considered holding on to some of Mama's things. But we reminded ourselves that they were merely physical things, wood, hay, and stubble, as St. Paul put it. If we kept them stored away, they would one day deteriorate and be of no benefit to anyone. Passing them on to those in need put them to good use and in some way help preserve the memories we treasured. With no other place to store the boxes, we placed them in the shop. As customers came by and saw them, they asked what we were doing. Corey explained about our desire to help refugees at the camp, and before long, word spread throughout the neighborhood. Very quickly, the shop filled with boxes and sacks of clothing and shoes and bedding. As we were running out of space to store the donations, William, now pastor of the church in Hemsark, a village just north of Harlem, stopped by one afternoon to pick up kick and saw how the shop had filled. He came upstairs to see me and asked what we were doing. His eyes lit up when I told him, and he asked how we were going to transport the boxes to the camp. Pastoral ministry had proved very different from what William expected. Studying at the university opened his eyes to a wider world and the increasingly complex lifestyle that defined most Europeans. He wanted to address broader social issues that the narrow confines of a Sunday sermon could ever accommodate. That moment when he heard what we were doing in our attempts to help the refugees, I saw a spark of the old William, the person we had known when we were younger, and life seemed full of possibilities. I don't know, I replied. We haven't figured that part out. Have any suggestions? I think I can get a truck, he beamed. That would be great. Can you drive it? Yes, he nodded. I think we can simply load it and appear at the camp without arranging it first. I wouldn't know who to contact, neither would I. I grinned mischievously. When can you get the truck? Early one morning, a few days later, I heard a truck come to a stop outside the shop door. We'd just finished breakfast and I was clearing the table. When the door opened downstairs, I heard William's voice and went to the top of the staircase to see what he was doing. He looked up at me with a wide grin. I have the truck. Want to get rid of this stuff today? With Corey, Tews, and Lewis helping, we began moving the boxes from the shop to the truck. Two men came from a shop next door to assist, and Bill sent over a third. Together we loaded the donations in less than an hour. When we were finished, Lewis went back to the shop and the others left. Papa, Corey, and William and I stood near the curb where William closed the rear doors of the truck. Are you going today, I asked as he latched the doors in place. Yes, I'm leaving right now. I'll go with you, I said hesitantly. You think you... No, you're not, Corey blurted out. It's too far, and who knows what you'll find when you get there. 
I have to go, I insisted. I don't think that's a good idea, Papa added quietly. Corey's right. It's a long way. I need to go, I implored. I want to see for myself what conditions are like, and maybe I can talk to someone. Talk to someone? Corey looked puzzled. About what? About what the Germans are really like. About why they fled. About the things Samuel Levy told us. Well, Papa replied, if you feel that way about it. No, Corey argued. This is ridiculous. It's a long way up there. You can't do this. I placed my hand on his shoulder. I'll be all right. It's a ride in the cab of a truck. Papa looked over at William. Take care of her and don't let her get into trouble. I'll do my best. William walked away to the opposite side of the truck. I stepped into the passenger door and reached to open it. Corey was standing behind us, near the back of the truck, staring at me as if I was leaving for good. I smiled at her. It's okay, Corey. I'll be back. Then Papa took her by the arm and guided her towards the shop door. Since the day that Samuel Levy came to the shop, I've been troubled by images his stories evoked in my mind. Jews attacked on the street, set on fire, shot on sight. The refugee camp wasn't in Germany, and it certainly was no concentration camp. Nevertheless, I had to see for myself what it was like, and I hoped against hope that someone would talk to me about what life was really like under the Nazis. Westervor was located all the way up near Groningen, not far from the German border almost as close to the North Sea. The drive to get there took most of the day. We arrived late in the afternoon. A shopkeeper in the town gave us directions to the camp, located in a rural area, and we made our way in that direction. It was a pleasant country with gentle rolling hills and woodlands, but as we rounded a curve in the road, we saw ahead of us a most appalling sight. The camp, almost two kilometers square, laid out on a hilltop, was ringed by a wire fence about four meters high. At each corner, there were towers manned by armed guards. Soldiers on foot patrolled the perimeter. A stench enveloped us, and even from a distance, the smell was overwhelming. Twice as we slowed to approach the entrance, I had to swallow hard to keep from vomiting. Large gates made with wooden frame and the same wire mesh as the fence barred the entrance. More armed guards were stationed there, and as we approached, one of them stepped out to stop us. William brought the truck to a stop and waited while the guard stepped to the driver's window, and then he showed his identification card that indicated he was a minister in the church. The guard, dressed in Netherland army uniform, glanced at the license and asked, What is the nature of your business? We have a truckload of clothes and other supplies that we wanted to deliver. As they talked, other soldiers gathered around, and the guard who stopped us nodded to them. In the mirror, I saw them move to the back of the truck and open the doors. We waited while they climbed inside and heard the sound of someone opening the boxes. They were talking excitingly, and then a soldier emerged from behind us, holding a leather jacket in his hand. I leaned near William to tell him, but he shook his head. I saw it. He has a jacket, I said, jabbing the air with my finger with emphasis. He took a jacket. Don't worry about it, he cautioned. It's okay. But they stole it, I lamented. Right here in plain sight. No, he said with amused grin. They didn't steal it. They took a sample for further examination. That might be the way the game was played, but I didn't like it. In protest, I folded my hands across my chest and slumped against the door on the side of the cab. A moment later, the guard returned to the driver's window and asked, Do you know where to go? No, William replied calmly. This is my first trip. Drive around the southern edge of the camp. The guard indicated with his hand which direction we should take. About halfway down the fence, we saw a gravel road to the right. Follow it to the cafeteria tent. Someone will help you.
William nodded and he put the truck in gear. Soldiers who just minutes before had been rifling through the truck pushed the gates open and we started forward. Behind the fence were rows of what appeared to be hastily constructed wooden shacks with tin roofs and only one or two windows each. Between them, campus tents were crammed into every available space. In the space between the wooden shacks and the fence, we found lean-tos constructed of shipping crates and packing materials. Paths through the camp were muddy, and I saw people mired past their ankles in thick brown goo, and people were everywhere, oozing between the hovels like a human morass. As we idled around the edge, I saw a little boy standing outside one of the tents. Not more than four years old, he was dressed in short pants. His bare feet were covered in mud to his knees, and he clutched a dirty blue blanket. Our eyes met, and he looked at me with the hollow gaze of a hungry, lonely child. I wanted to grab him up then, take him in my arms, and whisk him away to the bayet where he would be safe, warm, and clean. Tears filled my eyes as I realized that could never happen. A little further down the fence line, we came to a narrow lane that led towards the center of the camp. The path had probably once been covered with gravel, but most of the rocks were now buried in mud. William turned the truck into the lane and we came to a tent near the center of the camp. Beneath it, there were wooden tables in rows with chairs haphazardly arranged around them. On the far side, just beyond the edge of the tent, steam billowed from a dozen enormous iron kettles suspended over an open fire. This must be the place William turned the truck around in the center of the alley and backed it up to the tent. As the truck lurched to a stop, I opened the door and climbed from the cab. A woman came from among the kettles and stood near the front of the truck. She wore black military boots and the pants of a soldier's uniform with a wool sweater over a cotton blouse. Her hair was pulled behind her head, and she had smudges of dirt and grime on her cheeks. What's in the truck, she asked. Clothes, shoes, blankets, I replied, and a few food items. Good, she nodded. We can use all of it. Before we could say anything more, she disappeared behind the row of steaming kettles. William unlatched the rear doors of the truck and swung them open, and then climbed inside and handed me a small box. Set this over there, he said, nodding to the tables beneath the tent. I turned to do as he said, wondering how we'd ever get that truck unloaded by ourselves. When the woman we'd seen before returned, surrounded by a dozen teenagers, two of them climbed in back to help William, and the rest formed a line from the truck to the table. For the next thirty minutes, they worked methodically through the boxes and sacks, passing them from the truck to one another down the line to the tables. While they worked, they talked, and the sound of their voices filled the air. With the truck rapidly emptying, I glanced around to see if there was anyone I could talk to, someone who could answer my questions. I scanned the tables and over to the kettles and saw no one. But to the right, I saw a woman seated on the steps to a wooden shack that stood a few meters away. I made my way to that direction. But before I could reach her, she saw me and quickly went inside. And I, as I was turning away, an elderly man appeared at my side. You came with the truck, he said in a heavy German accent. Yes, I replied in German. A smile brightened his face. You bring us hope. Then, just as quickly as it came, the smile vanquished. We have nothing. You left it all behind? What they didn't take? The Germans. Yes, he nodded. The Nazis. We took a seat at one of the tables beneath the tent. And for the next 30 minutes, he told me of the atrocities he and thousands of others had endured. As he talked, I learned his name was Leonard Mickelson. He'd been educated at Oxford and took a teaching position in Berlin, only to be ousted when the Nazis came to power. They purged us all, every Jew, eliminated from the faculty. 
Only for a while did they let Tews pick up the garbage and clean the floors, and then they stopped even that. What did you do? What could we do? At first I found odd jobs. There were still people who were sympathetic to our situation and who did not mind the risk of helping us. But gradually the Nazis became stricter, even sending people to camps for helping us. No one wants to go to the camps. What do you know about the camps? They work you harder than two men, feed you half as much as they would require, and if you complain or fail to do the work, they shoot you. Does that really happen? That and things much worse. You saw this? When those two men were shot in the German embassy in Paris, the SS came to our village the next day. They said that ten of us would die for each one of those men, so they walked down the street together in mass, right there in the middle of the day. And as they went, they grabbed whomever they saw, took them to the center of the town, and shot them dead right there in front of us. Some of us went to claim the bodies, but they beat us and told us to leave them. The bodies lay there for three weeks, rotting. You saw this? Yes, he fumed, I saw this. Why do you keep asking me that? Because I've heard stories, but never from anyone who was actually there. Someone who actually saw it, and I wanted to know if these stories are true. One of the ones they shot that day was my brother. He was standing next to me when the soldiers came by. They took him, but left me. I went to claim his body. They beat me. He turned his back to me and pulled up his shirt to reveal thick, ugly scars. See what they did to me? Yes, I choked back the tears. He lowered his shirt and turned to face me. One of them hit me with the butt of a rifle and knocked me to the ground. And the others joined in, kicking me and stomping on me. And then someone brought a whip and they whipped me like an animal. I'm so sorry, I sobbed. I'm so sorry. He sat beside me and slipped his hand across my shoulder. I can see you have a good heart, he said softly. But if you want to know the truth, you must know it all. They use women for their pleasure, and then they kill them in the most gruesome way you can imagine, Jewish women. Some of the mothers of the people you see around us, they use babies for a target practice, Jewish babies tossed in the air and shot for sport. If you see someone, a Jew, walking down the street, and they think of it, they shoot them, with no regard or consequences to themselves. My neighbor, Oscar Hitzfeld, was shot in the back of the head by a Nazi playing a game with his fellow soldier. They were up in the bell tower of the church, challenging each other to see who could shoot a Jew from the furthest distance. These things happen to us every day in Germany. That is why we are here. That's the end of chapter 22, and next week we'll have chapter 23. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.